Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing, plus all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. Today on the show, we are talking with Will Gad, who has established a number of the hardest mixed ice climbing lines in the world. He's also set the world distance record for paragliding twice. He's kayaked down dozens of first ascents across North America, and he won the Canadian National Sports Climbing Championships four times. And yet, I think the most extraordinary thing about Will might just be his infectious enthusiasm for doing just about anything outdoors, and that's something that we're going to be talking about in this episode. And it's that enthusiasm coupled with his passion for making sure that the next generation and the generations after them have the same opportunities. So in this conversation, I am talking to one of the best ice climbers of all time, but Will and I also talk quite a bit about skiing and paragliding and rock climbing and kayaking and mountain biking and how all of these different sports relate to one another. Will and I talk about his new film called The Last Ascent, which documents Will's return to Mount Kilimanjaro in February 2020 to climb the Messner route and the Tanzanian ice on Mount Kilimanjaro while he still can. You can go to redbulltv.com to watch The Last Ascent, and we'll include a link to the film in the show notes of this episode. And so with that, let's get to my terrific conversation with Will Gad. Here we go. Well, Will Gad, how are you today and where are you today? <laughs> I'm pretty good, Jonathan. I'm in Canmore, Alberta, which is uh, straight north of Idaho, pretty much. And yeah, mountainous place. And that's why I live here, of course. And uh, yeah, it's like to be hanging out with you in Crested Butte, I guess. Eh? <laughs> that's right. Yep. And you were just saying, it sounds like you've actually spent quite a bit of time here in Crested yeah. Butte. Oh yeah, crusty butt, man. Um, I once, <laughs> I mean, I've done, I've skied from Aspid to Crested Butte. I think I did a race. There used to be some kind of wacko yeah. race that I used to do. Is that still going There's, on? It's still going on. The Grand Traverse. Yeah. Yeah, the Grand Traverse. That was awesome. I did that way back in the day. And then I flown my paraglider from Aspid to Crested Butte back, and I drove my truck. I don't know if you can still do this, but I took a brand new truck, scratched the shit out of it, and drove it from Crested Butte to Aspid. It was awesome. Can you still do that? I honestly don't know if you can officially do that, and I think I might just leave. I think I might just leave it at that. Okay. Well, you, anyhow, no, I know the area really well. I lived in Colorado for almost fifteen years, and or ten years, anyhow. A great state, and yeah. But I'm sure your listeners don't need us to tell them how great it is. You know? Well, it's funny, man. I gotta say, the the paragliders have just been out in force the last like several weeks but every time i look out my window up at the butte it's just like they're circling circling the butte circling the butte so uh i'm getting that glimpse right now kind of of what you've been doing and cool i guess that's a question that i've got coming on how much paragliding you're doing these days well the answer is i mean i don't i, I don't do enough paragliding like i'd like to do more but i've had a couple of really good flights this summer and i did one great flight where i took off 
this area that I fly a lot, I'd always wanted to camp on this one mountain. So it'd be like taking off near where you are and fly by one of the ridges and the maroon bells and being like, yeah, and then stuffed it in there and, and, you know, camped up there, a gorgeous place up high in the mountains. There's a snowbank for water and just nobody around, you know, nobody lads on top of mountains. So um, had everything, you know, light little tent, you know, I'm pretty particular. You got to get all your gear down to a pretty small volume to fit in your paraglider. But I got food for a few days and uh, and a tent and a, and a light stove. And the next morning, got up and launched off the southeast facing slopes with a thermal start first and flew straight over the divide. And it's the same divide that you know is pretty close to you there in, yeah. in Colorado, right over the Continental Divide. And it was a pretty awesome couple of days. So that's um, really cool. That's I do less paragliding than I'd like, but I'm I'm still out there a fair amount. Well, we're going to get in in this conversation more about your kind of very interesting background. And it's not just background, it's kind of your present as well, because you do a lot of different things. But I want to talk a little bit now about this new film of yours, The Last Ascent. This is something else. What's your nutshell when you meet somebody and they're like, oh, you've got a new film. What's it about? How do you answer <laughs> this question? Ice in Africa, how that's changing. Like you don't think of ice in Africa, but there actually is some. And as an ice climber, I've wanted to climb ice on all seven continents. And I was like, it looked like it was going to be a pretty tough go in Africa. But there's actually a lot of ice on top of Kilimanjaro. So I went there in 2014, checked it out, and was surprised by how wrong the maps were. Maps are always wrong in my world. Like the glaciers are always smaller. It's, it, you know, it, it, especially with ice, it, it, glaciers are never like they are on maps. But in Kilimanjaro, it was radically different in 2014. It was like, what's going on here? Got some amazing images that, that on that trip that went all over the world. Christian Pondella slated as always. That guy's, you know, he's an original, original slayer of all things imagery and, and just a, Great, you know, if you're a skier, you know his images for sure. Um, but anyhow, he took these pictures that went all over the world and they showed these little fins of ice that were disappearing quite quickly. And it really got a lot of attention in areas maybe where people aren't necessarily thinking about climate change at all. And I was really disappointed. I was like, I've blown it. I've gone to this place. The ice is disappearing. <laughs> it's not that much left. It's got a small. And then the images blew up, but it was the most successful trip in terms of impact I've ever done. And then I was like, okay, let's go back. And there's this thing called the Messner route. And I was on Kilimanjaro. And it's interesting because Messner is, if you're a climber, Messner is, you know, he's the, he didn't just invent, it's like, it's like, you know, Michael Jordan was the best basketball player of all time, arguably, but uh, he didn't invent the sport. Like Messner invented the sport, invented the move, like, and then did all kinds of things. Like, you know, people talk about climbing Everest. Messner climbed it without oxygen first. He climbed it solo without oxygen. He climbed all 14, 8,000. This guy is a total badass. Yet he put this climb on Kilimanjaro, which is the highest point in Africa, on the cover of his book. The first book that he did was, you know, kind of made him a, a very famous man. Is a picture of this ice climb on Kilimanjaro. I was like, okay, it's obviously getting warmer in Kilimanjaro. Uh, if that route's still there, I'd like to try and climb it. And that was, the, that was one goal of the trip. And then the other goal of the trip was to compare photographs from 2014 and 2016 to see how much had changed. You know, is it, a, is it a fast change? Is it a slow change? What's going on up there? And then we were also partnered with a research scientist who's been gathering weather data up there on top of Kilimanjaro. 
And if you're super well-funded, you get to beam this stuff straight to a satellite. But you know, science funding is a little harder to come by. He's an American scientist. And so he's been basically storing everything on memory modules. So And, it, and it's equipment. Stuff breaks. So we got to go up there and get his memory modules out, put new ones in, kind of rehabilitate the station, get them set up, hopefully, for another couple of years of good weather data. So, yeah, that was the idea behind the trip. Plus, Doug, the, the scientist's name is a guy named Doug Hardy. Super bright dude. And he could explain why these things form these crazy fins and the processes that were going on up there. You know, why is this ice disappearing? Is it because of warmth or other factors? And plus, I get to climb something cool. So that was the idea behind the trip. Here we go. For people who have not yet watched this film, I mean, the ice is just, it's striking. I mean, it's striking for several reasons. One, just some of the formations are just, it's like that that actually exists is spectacular and very awe-inspiring. And then on the flip, that we are seeing these unbelievable formations recede, it is kind of awe-inspiring and sobering, right, at the same time. I guess I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about how you think some of these spots or the ice itself kind of compares in some of the other spots around the globe that you've climbed at. Well, they're, the, the fins themselves are really, really cool. They're like climbing icebergs in the ocean, except you're on top of a volcano, which is what Kilimanjaro is. So you look at it, it's just like relatively striking blue or white ice formation sort of sailing along in the sand it's just weird looking like how does that work how does that how does that happen there and these ice formations don't form very many places in the world first of all you need a glacier <laughs> so you, that kind of limits things and then you need to be relatively close to the equator because they form east west so the sun basically comes up and blasts trenches in in the glacier and then eventually these fins get separated out and they actually aren't formed by meltwater. If you look at them, you can see that they're not cut by meltwater. They don't look like sandstone fins in the same way. They actually form by sublimation, which means the sun hits them and it goes straight from ice to water vapor. And so that's, you know, you've got to have a, a perfect combination of a lot of sun close to the equator and then a relatively dry atmosphere for sublimation to, to really work well. And then you get the craziest ice formations in the planet. I don't think there's any... You know, I've seen stuff sort of like this at the toe of a glacier where it's calving off and you get big chunks, you know, like usually there's like an Alaska tour boat running away from it or something. But these things are so sculptural and so cool. Like they're they're definitely some of the just visually it's like climbing sculptures or something. It's just cool. I mean, this is really fun for me, like talking right now to such an accomplished person in this field. And I always really find it intriguing to get to talk to somebody who is at such a high level and then go back and ask them, you've talked already a little bit about Messner. This is always really fun for me. And I, I wonder for those who aren't really connected you know, to the sport of ice climbing, I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about this guy and 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 what he did and and really just provide a a proper context. I mean, you kind of said he invented the sport and that that's true, that's not an overstatement. Well, I think he every sport gets refined. People have been climbing mountains for a long time. But the traditional approach in the Himalayas, you show up there with like a, you know, a crew of 100 people to carry your gear and you fix ropes all the way to the summit. And you suck down a lot of oxygen, which lowers the altitude. 
you know, and, and everybody's like, this is the only way to climb the route. And a lot of people are still stuck on this today. A lot of people are going to, to Everest and trying to climb it in a style from the, the 70s. You know, it's, they're not climbing the mountain. If you're sucking oxygen all the way up Everest, you're climbing a mountain that is a lot lower. You knock it from 29,000 feet down to about 20. And, uh, you know, it's, to me, it seems like entering a, a marathon wearing roller skates. Like, yeah, you went the same distance, but you're not in the same class. Like, Messner, Messner was the first person to do that. And I have just, you know, that, that alone, everybody said, you're going to die. And Messner's like, no, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> like, and he was, it was amazing. And he did that, you know, so he did that. He, he was the first person to really take fast and light alpinism, meaning climbing without porters, without fixed ropes, and without a lot of bullshit, basically, and apply it to the Himalaya, the biggest mountain range in the world, and did so spectacularly. But what a lot of people don't understand about Messner is that he wasn't just a high-altitude slogger. He was a super accomplished climber. I've climbed some of the routes that he did in the Dolomites, and you're up there, and you're like, you've got like one finger in doing the mono and hanging on some little edge, and you imagine him being there in his big mountain boots and a beard that weighed like 14 pounds alone, cranking the same move back in the day. He, he was a hell of an accomplished technical climber. So he reinvented Himalayan mountaineering, then he did a bunch of polar exploration, and he was also a decent ice climber. It wasn't his, for, his first thing, but what he did on Kilimanjaro, climbing ice of that difficulty at um, close to 6,000 meters, 5,500 meters, is, is a very accomplished thing to do. And you know, he did it so long ago at the very birth of the ice climbing era that he it was genuinely way ahead of its time. And, and, and the fact that he put it on the cover of his book is... You know, if Michael Jordan puts his like high school basketball photo on the cover of his book, you could be like, "Must have been a good game there, Mr. Jordan." <laughs> so it's uh, that's what he did, and, and I think that was really cool. So you know, ice climbers are always looking for aesthetics. That's that's a big part of ice climbing. It is a sport that it has a big aesthetic component, not just um, sheer athleticism, although that certainly helps. But it's defined by how cool something looks, like surfing, maybe you know, or like. A trail can be like the steepest trail. It doesn't really mean it's the best trail, does it? It's like, is it cool, <laughs> right? Like you go for a ride. You got like, I'm riding to the top of Crested Butte on the cat track today. You're like, what's the coolest way to get there and down? So ice climbers are the same way. Like what's cool? And Messner's route on Kilimanjaro is this really striking pillar, giant thing. He, he called it like the size of a church, basically. It's been there in every photo that I have for the past 30 years. So I was optimistic that it would be there again. And anyhow, does that answer your question about Messner? Does that? It it does it pretty well. You know, in the film, we see a scene of you meeting Messner, and I guess I wanted to ask: Was that actually the first time you met, or had you interacted with him much prior to that? I'd, I'd done a couple things with Messner over the years. He worked with Fila for many, many years, and I worked with Fila for a while. So I had dinner with him with about 10 people one night. No reason he'd remember, you know, the, the super skinny Canadian kid. <laughs> so, and, and he would come to the Bountfield Festival, and I would have something to do with it. So I've met him a few times, but when I called him up and I was like, hey, can I, can I interview you through his handler? And, and he was, you know, the handler's like, no, I've got no hope. And I was like, well, maybe just mention to him that it's about Kilimanjaro and ice climbing. And 15 minutes later, she was back. He'll talk to you because <laughs> it was so important to him, right? And th then we got to talking, and the interview doesn't really show it, but we had a, a great conversation, um, and which pissed off everybody else that was there to interview them because he took about an hour and a half for a 15-minute interview. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it was really cool. Great, great guy, super interesting. He has a very large force of personality, as you could probably tell in the interview. And 
for me, it really was like getting, if you're a basketball player, getting to interview Michael Jordan or, you know, who's the, who's the current legend of mountain biking, you know, Ned Overend or something. I don't know. That kind of figure that really changed the sport in a lot of ways. We, we mentioned, I mean, you, you are a kayaker, you are into paragliding, you, you also ski and all this other stuff. Do you kind of have a, I don't know, like Mount Rushmore of some of these pioneers or figures for you that like you, when you go up and maybe met them the first time, or if you were to meet them today, you would kind of be like, Oh my God, like I, this is a big deal for me. Do you have a couple of those? I take it Messner's Messner would be on your Mount Rushmore. Yeah. I mean, lots of people like that. It's, there's so many people that have done amazing things and I am really lucky in that I get to go to various sporting events and, you know, and I did get to actually like meet Michael Jordan once for about three seconds, but <laughs> it was kind of cool, you know, for sure. Smoking a big ass cigar at Monte Carlo and it was, it was a good time. So, um, I've, I have had the opportunity to meet a lot of my heroes and, and I, I'm lucky that way for sure. It's been a neat tag. Yep. Then some of the lesser known people too, you know, like, Bob, um, skateboarder, Burnquest, you know, in different fields, there's always people that are pushing and striving to do different things just because they think it's really cool, whatever it is. And I, I admire the hell out of anybody, whether they're well-known or not, that's trying to reinvent his or her sport. Talk a little bit about what is it that gets rock climbers primarily interested or particularly drawn to starting to climb ice? For me, the more complex something is, the more interesting it is. And what you're trying to do in ice climbing is figure out a really complex environment. And it has a lot of physics in it. How does ice work? Why does it adhere to rock? You know, ice is this weird substance where when it first freezes, it actually gets larger, right? You put ice cubes in a tray and all of a sudden they're overfilling the tray by like 10 or 15% or whatever it is. So it's, it's a really weird substance. And then the fact that you can climb ice makes no sense. Like you walk out of, you know, your average McDonald's or whatever, you slip on the ice, you know, you see McDonald's, whatever, but it's seen as this hazard or you wreck your truck going over the pass or whatever, but you can climb this stuff. Like, how cool is that? And I, and I think for me, it's the same as paragliding. It's like, it's just magic. It, it, it shouldn't work. You can hike up a mountain with a paraglider and fly off and land 200 K away. Like, how cool is that? You know, or mountain biking, we could, it's just that same sense of unlikely possibility that I love about it. And then most, most ice climbers rock climb a fair amount too. You know, it's like, we're not going to bring out the Lycra pictures from the eighties and early nineties, but I was like competitive sport climber back in the day and won the North Americans and the Canadian championships and some other, you know, a whole bunch of competitions. And so I have that background and they're not exclusive, but I live in Canada where it's like winter for six months of the year. It's probably pretty similar to Crested Butte actually, although the sun's a bit stronger down there. So you, you, you end up with these huge chunks of year, the year where rock climbing sucks. So, <laughs> you, you, you know, it's not like I could travel an hour away like you guys can in Colorado and get desert rock or something. It's, so it makes sense. And I've always done my sports kind of by season. It's like in the, you know, in the summer, I, I start off usually, say it's, you know, spring. I start off with paddling usually. And then that winds down sometime midsummer, and it goes into more mountain biking and, and more rock climbing. And then that kind of runs through the fall and the, the you know, this, and then it's, then it's ice climbing season, mixed climbing season. And, um, it just wraps around and I've just always done that. I think that's one reason I've stayed healthier and had a longer athletic career than some people is I take big chunks of time where 
you know, I might go climbing occasionally, but I'm, I'm primarily paddling or primarily paragliding or, you know, paragliding is when I let all my injuries heal until I crash and hurt myself. You know? <laughs> it's, it's just sequential like that. It's really interesting. Like thinking about paddling too. It's like when you're talking about ice climbing, the wall will move, can move, can come down on you. And I have this conversation a lot with my friends who both ski and boat. They always talk about like, frankly, skiing is kind of simple. Some of them have even said boring compared to kayaking. When we're skiing, we're trying to avoid the avalanche. When they're getting in a boat, they're surfing the avalanche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fair analogy. I mean, it's a, all, all these sports are kind of on a continuum to me between like, you know, flow and, and static, like rock climbing, super static. And, you know, you're not moving very fast. Generally, if things are getting weird, you slow down, you put in a piece of gear, you clip a bolt, or you just go home. It, it, it very rarely, unless you've made a really bad series of judgments, so you like way run out above your last piece of gear. And, you know, whereas every time you drop into a, a you know, a, a kayaking drop, you know, of whatever it is, you're coming out the bottom one way or the other. You are committed. So there's a lot of flow in that. And paragliding is the same. When you launch, you're going to land. And skiing is an interesting one because it has elements of both, but I'd still put it much more toward the flow side of things. Like when you're skiing fast, you can't just say, I'm done, you know, and you're you're in it, you know, and you're out in the terrain. And once you commit to ski something, very rarely are you walking back to the top, you know, you're not just stopping. So there's like, what I've noticed over the years is like climbers who ski or have a competitive skiing background or a high-end paddling background, they transition to paragliding pretty well. They get it. The movements are the same. The thought patterns are the same, you know, kayaking, you really drive the boat with your hips, paragliding, you drive the wing with your hips. It's pretty good. But more importantly, they understand the the process of looking ahead and seeing what's going to happen. But climbers are like super static. So they get in a wing and it's not really that great. Like if you're a skier, kayaker, higher end mountain biker, you'll do fine at paragliding and probably switch between those three sports without too much drama. But if you're a climber, it's like you can stick to ice, you can go ice climbing and stuff, but it's that the, the, the minds of those people are, are often very different. Is this a fair characterization? It's with the rock climber. I mean, often you're finding very analytical types, right? Who, who really take and and excel at rock climbing, but it's literally solving every single problem. One move, right? Solve that problem. Now I'm going to solve the next problem. Whereas I think with paragliding, skiing, kayaking, you got to be good at anticipating lines and looking further out Yeah, and linking it all together. And it's, it's not about right now, right? In fact, we all know that, right? It's, it's not about the move right in front of your face. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, you know, and, and, and climbing a lot of time, the solution to a problem is to try harder. Like if you're, if you're, Whereas in paragliding, if you start trying or paddling, if you're getting beat down, the solution is not to try harder. The solution is to relax and wait. And and understanding that it's it's a hard skill to teach people. So paragliders, when rock climbers start paragliding, they often like try to control everything because they're used to being in a very high control environment. Whereas in kayaking, you know, on your mountain bike, when you're going fast, you gotta let it buck to some degree. 
You know, <laughs> it's just, if you try to like stop every little motion, you'll, you'll just, it just won't work, right? You'll be stiff. You'll, you'll hit a cactus. It'll be done, right? So, but in climbing, you can control a lot more of the variables in rock climbing. And then you move more toward alpinism where you're in a, on a big face and you've got cornices, you've got rocks frozen into the ice that you've got to understand when they're going to release. And there's a spectrum of motion in terms of static to dynamic. And then there's kind of a spectrum of terrain from simple to complex. And, you know, you could probably put those on like a couple of axes and, and be like, where, where, where does my mind work well? You know, I, I like, you know, um, highly complex thinking with like relatively low consequence. You could, you could like graph all this shit out or something. But it's, you know, I move back and forth from all these arenas, but I don't like really high risk environments generally. You know, like alpine climbing, yeah, it's pretty crazy to say, but like alpine climbing, say you're on a big face, you're on like a 5,000 foot face. Conditions are radically bottom and they are different at the bottom than they are at the top. You're dealing with a lot of terrain in there. Um, if it's a wintry sort of situation that you can't see or analyze. And if you look at the kind of mortality rates for high end alpine climbers, basically half of any generation die. Whereas for sport climbing, you know, relatively few in any generation die from sport climbing. Paddling, it's a little bit higher, you know, paragliding, it's probably a bit higher than that. Riding a motorcycle is roughly the same as paragliding, but you can kind of look at the, look at the outcomes and, and, you know, the one thing I would just say on that, that drives me nuts is people like, oh, it's safer to, you know, my sport's safer than driving. It's like, that might almost be true for sport climbing, but it's bullshit for the rest of these sports. You know? My friends don't die fucking driving, you know, very rarely that does happen, but um, I think having a realistic appreciation of the hazards of our sports is essential to like decide where we want to operate. So then, yeah, ranting and raving there, a little bit off topic, but ice clubbing's rad, paraglidings rad. It's all great stuff, and you just want to keep doing it for as long as you can. Back to the last ascent. Films are this distillation of a very rich experience that you had out there in Kilimanjaro, and so I guess I'd be curious to ask. Is there something that was captured in this film where you were like, wow, that actually just nailed our experience out there? And then conversely, I guess I was curious, you know, in a 45-minute film, is there something about the experience that maybe isn't present in the film because it would have just taken too long or been too hard to kind of really capture and convey? Two-part question, I guess, for you. Okay. I think what that film did really well and that is, is important to me is show people the change. We went there in 2014, we took all these pictures, and then we went back in 26, you know, in 2020, and we can we can show the change. And whether you believe in climate change or not, you can take a look at that and be like, wow, something is going on here that's obviously pretty significant. I think the film did a great job of that. And uh, I'm really stoked on that. And I think it does a good job of explaining some of the science. And then I show up there and I'm not going to, you know, I show up to climb the Messner route and there are issues, right? Like <laughs> there's a couple. Different. <laughs> yeah, it's a couple. So I think for people that haven't watched the film, it does a good job of like capturing the uncertainty and, and, and battle of, of doing these things. And then Doug's research showing the world that like, this is, this is a guy who's like, he's up on top of a glacier in Africa you can't pay anybody enough money to stay up there. He really loves it. You know, he's sick with the altitude. We're all just punched and destroyed and pulling together to make, I think, a pretty decent film that hopefully reaches people 
who maybe wouldn't see the typical nature documentary, you know, and today the planet is 0.01 degrees. It's like there, I'm up there like swearing and bleeding. <laughs> and my ice isn't there. You know, I hope, I hope that resonates with people who, who maybe have a little bit of a different view um, out there because it's, you know, as we were talking about a minute ago, it's, I want to reach the people who maybe aren't big subscribers to the New York times. You know, that's like, that's who I need to engage with and show the the changes that I see in the world. And I do work with protect our winners. I do some stuff at the United Nations environmental program. Like, but I feel like with that, with that, I'm often not reaching people that I really need to, to show change. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to beat people up. I'm a total hypocrite. I fly around in jets here. Right. But I am trying to figure out how to live life with more integrity in, in what I do. And I'm having some success, you know, <laughs> like five years ago, I got it or 10 years ago, I'd get in a jet and be like, I'm going somewhere cool. This is the end of the conversation. Or is there going to be like a meal and a drink or not? That was, that was the only questions I had. And now it's like, okay, what's the impact of what I'm doing here? And is this really necessary? And how do I want to live my life so that I'm not fucking up the world for my kids? That's, you know, that's part of this project for me. And to get back to your earlier question, the one thing that's not in that film that I wish was in there more were the people um, on the trip. We got Tanzanians, right? And these are, they're awesome. And we got to do a great day of ice climbing together. We basically shut the whole production down for a day to go ice climbing with these guys. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, they're on top of their mountain climbing their ice and, and it was just awesome. So I wish that were more of that were in there, but I'm actually going to put up a Instagram post here hopefully after I run downtown, but I'll get of that shows that interaction because those guys are just great and we couldn't have done the film without them. So I wish there was more of them in there. What a great answer to the question. You're, that was a long answer. No, it's perfect. You're, you're, you're nailing this. Let's talk for a little bit about, you know, I, I just had Jeremy Jones on last week and we were very much talking about how important we both think it is that we don't just do this kind of preaching to the choir. And, you know, and by the way, there, it's not like you or I or Jeremy have perfectly dialed perspectives, you know, on everything. So no. we, we need to be open as well, right? To like be learning from perhaps some unexpected sources, right? I think in general, kind of an openness, I've just really found myself thinking about this quite a bit. So it's cool to hear you. And I think hopefully many of us realizing like, you know, first, first, we just need to start sounding the drumbeat. Second, we need to be figuring out how we in our individual lives create a more responsible relationship to the things we love and the outdoors and a whole slew of issues, right? Yeah, I'm with you. I think I mean, you know, Jeremy Jones is another one that you know, he's a, in my view, a, a, certainly in terms of achievement, a contemporary of Messner. And I got to work on a, I forget what we did together, some TV series or something. We got to work together and it was great. Um, so I'd really admire what he does. And I think he's providing a lot of leadership. Um, I'm not as good at that as he is by a log shot, but I take a lot of inspiration from what he's done. And, and um, you know, I do try to do a little bit of that myself. And, and, what I hope when people see these pictures from the top of Kilimanjaro, they see is like the change. It is so radical and so obvious. And I, I hope people watch that. They're not just, you know, I'd regard myself as a pretty decently aware environmentalist. And, and I hope it reaches like 
people in, in who are not in that world. You know, I hope it reaches some of my friends and like working and wrenching on stuff in the desert somewhere. And they're like, okay, this is different. And I, that's what I hope with that because we're all in this together. And so I can't just say, Oh, you know, you, you're, you're not part of this. So, you know, double, double middle fingers up. That That is not going to solve the problem long-term. Especially when I myself, well, I, like I live in Texas North, right? That's what Alberta's called. And, you know, I do things with like oil companies and stuff. And I'm not going to get up there and just beat on these guys. They're smart people. But if I can show them pictures, talk about it and get a conversation going, then I think that's a lot more valuable. And surprisingly, actually, the energy industry is way more switched on than they're given credit for. They're, they're aware of this. They're thinking about it a lot because it has a huge impact on, on their business. So you got to assume people are really smart and maybe you could just get in a conversation and, you know, two beers and, and a plate of nachos, you could solve a lot of problems. Hmm. Two beers and a plate of nachos. That's yeah, there you go, man. <laughs> That's my solution. Yeah, I like that. You should, yeah, we, you should be running for president of something. Your whole, your whole platform could just be a couple of beers and a plate of nachos. We're gonna go solve we'll, a lot. We'll get this figured out. We'll now. get this figured out. So we've touched on paragliding and mountain biking and skiing and kayaking and ice climbing and rock climbing. And <laughs> I guess I'm curious now, is there one of these sports that you, for whatever reason, you are just currently most jazzed up about? I mean, you've already said this is kind of a seasonal thing for you, but I always think this is fun, right? Like sometimes we're just obsessed with X for a particular time. Maybe it's because there's a particular project on our horizon or something, but what are you jazzed up about the most at the moment? Well, in terms of sports, what I'm jazzed up about right now is really rock climbing. I've, I've devoted myself to that with, with the whole COVID thing. My travel situation has meant that I stayed local, which is great. And I've, I've, put a lot of time into rock climbing. I'm rock climbing pretty well. It's like, I haven't rock climbed this well since I was about 25 and I'm 53. So I'm pretty, well, maybe older than that, maybe 30. So I'm pretty stoked to be able to get back to a pretty high level of rock climbing. So that's been awesome. And then I, I was riding a lot this summer too, because again, it's super local. I've got riding right out my door and I got a newer bike last fall that I really like and pretty stoked. But I just, I don't know if there's, you probably can't see the damage, but I'm still, I stacked myself. I haven't crashed in like a year, really, you know, like a year. I was feeling like a, and then the same ride, I crashed twice. I stuffed a, a stick all the way through. I broke the bead on a tubeless tire, stuffing a stick. How the hell do you do that? Stuffing a stick between the tire, went over the bars into a bush, you know, twice in one ride. So I'm a little bit, mountain biking is out to kill me right now. So I'll probably back down. <laughs> but I sure do love riding. And I'm, you know, it's funny. I've been riding regularly, you know, for, my dad built a, a one-to-one geared BMX bike for me when I was like 12. So I was like, that was my first mountain bike. Eh? And you're out there like giving it on your one-to-one, then you had to take the chain off and actually physically. So it was like 32, 32, and then like 50, whatever that number 14 was in the back, right? So it was the same number of teeth so that you, you had a one-to-one mountain bike. So I've been mountain biking like, like a very long time. And, but right now it's, it's out to kill me. So it's probably time to switch to ice climbing a little bit more or something. Something safe like ice climbing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you fall off your mountain bike, the ground's right there. You want to get away from that shit a bit. Get some altitude so you're safer. 
<laughs> you, no, I'm making that. You are funny. This perspective is hilarious. Yeah, but I guess, I guess that's how you get to be one of the best ice climbers out there. Is you think ice climbing super safe, but man, those mountain bikes, those are out to get you. Oh, right now they are. I mean, it'll it'll change by the spring. I'll be like, I'm so over this ice climbing thing, and and all I want to do is like go to the desert and climb some rock and ride my bike in the sun. And, and, um, I hope the U S Canadian border gets open again pretty soon because it's, uh, you know, I, I, I really love the desert and, and miss it. I think it's really fun. These conversations, like your passion for all these different sports just kind of exudes. And, you know, <laughs> while I really admire people and athletes who like just have their one thing sure. and they do that at a high level and with a lot of discipline and the rest, boy, when I get into conversations like this with somebody who is like, well, this season I'm all about this and I love this other thing. And this other thing is so great for these reasons. Like, man, that just, it's like, that's what makes like being alive real fun. Well, yeah, it's those, yeah, I, I, it's, it, you know, I always compare it to being a little kid on Saturday morning. You're just so psyched to go do whatever you, you, you remember that feeling. You wake up, you got an endless day, like dinner is a decade away and you, and you've got something you're just so psyched to go do, you know, whatever it is. And, and that's kind of what I've built my life around is trying to wake up on days where, you know, some days it's like my kids and I are just going to go ride our bikes a bit or, or what, you know, whatever it is that you're like genuinely stoked to get your hair blown back and get your fix on stike, you know? And so I, that's, yeah. Um, and it does, I, I do feel like doing multiple sports is lucky. You know, I did burn out on competitive climbing. I, that's all I did for like three years. And I was like, I don't ever want to be inside again. I'm out. So, you know, I got way into paragliding and now I'm back. I'm like, I'm training on the wall in my backyard again. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not quite anorexic, but I'm light. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it comes in waves, man. You just got to have something that gets you stoked and, and be able to do it. It sure is great if that's in your life. Well, if that is our definition today of a life well lived, I think you're doing life real well, Will. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm pretty stoked. Yeah. So what do I buy for my next mountain bike? I'll give you the, I'll give you the parameters. Cause I've been, I've been checking your, you are serious about your gear reviews. Gear reviews are bullshit these days. And I was checking yours out and they are really good. So I'm, I'm stoked on that. That's you've done something neat there. Oh, well, thanks. Well, yeah. I mean, happy to talk about mountain bikes at any point. If you want to do this now, I'm certainly, you're the one who has to take off in a minute here. I, I, I do have to take off in about five minutes here, but um, it's probably not the best use of, I'll, we could do that conversation separately, but I was going through, I like the kind of line segmentation and I used to write gear reviews. So I've got a big, you know, I still do a ton of product development for Black Diamond. So working on their ice gear, their crampons, harnesses, and same with Arcteryx. I work with I think two of the more technically technologically oriented companies out there. And, you know, I just got Reco put into all of Arcteryx's Alpine gear because we're always losing people. We're losing Alpine climbers. And now there's this new Reco system where they have a ball that hangs below the helicopter and they can find, they can search like vast areas really fast. So I do a lot of work on gear. I care about gear a lot. I'd love to, we can have another conversation about gear, but gear is great. I got to, Dude, I don't, my garage, you should come check my garage out. It's, it's a winning, uh, it's, it's competitive. It's a bit of a geek fest. I'm, I am, uh, I am prepared to believe you, uh, that, that you've yeah. got a pretty, a pretty good garage going that, that, uh, that yeah. would not be surprising at all now. <laughs> you got yeah, kayaks, mountain bikes, paragliders, you know, there's so many th great things to do, aren't there? Well, listen, 
I will be happy to talk mountain bikes with you anytime you okay. want. And I have, Thank I definitely you. have some, some opinions on that, uh, as do, of course, all of our reviewers. But for now, people can go check out The Last Ascent. I'm quite happy. I think this conversation was kind of maybe providing a bit of the context to maybe really give people a sense of like, yeah, I need to go check out what this dude Will is up to and what he's done here. So I think this is actually going to function as a really nice companion piece for people to then go watch this film. It's called The Last Ascent. Best place for people to go find it? Red Bull TV. Just type in redbulltv.com and it'll go there. And, and there's a lot of other pretty good entertainment there as well. It's a really cool film and a really cool project. Congrats for pulling it all off. Congrats for coming back alive. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be really fun for uh, for more people to to check out the challenges of the project and the beauty of this place. Yeah, hopefully then we can also do that other important part where we continue to think about how we make adjustments in our own lives and how we talk to other people about coming together and figuring out what we need to do to lessen our impact on this this beautiful world of ours. We've only got one. It'd be nice to keep it in decent shape. <laughs> yeah, just, so, I, yeah, thank you for that. And I hope people do check it out and have a good time. I think most people who watch it, they're like, yeah, this is a worthwhile use of 45 minutes. I mean, there's always TikTok and everything else, but uh, I think this is worthwhile. It's definitely worthwhile. Will, great to connect with you. And I'm already looking forward to the next time We'll let you get going for now, but thanks for connecting today. Thank you very much for uh, calling me up and having the conversation and doing the good gear reviews and everything else you've got on the site there. That's pretty neat. So um, I will circle back on that. What's my next mountain bike stage? <laughs> I mean, there's questions about this. I want to understand why. I, yeah, anyhow, we'll get into it. But thank you very much. <laughs> this stuff's interesting, right? So there we go. It's very interesting. Hey, man, thanks again. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. Thanks, Dad. Take care. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Will for the conversation. And remember that you can catch more great conversations over on our other podcasts, including Off the Couch, Bikes and Big Ideas, and Gear 30. And you can find all of those on our Blister website or wherever you download your podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.